She's one of those characters that so many people are drawn to just because of her story and her background and her strength and her vulnerability. She can do it all. She can, you know, rule a country, rule a planet, marry some dude, divorce some dude, fight some warlocks, go to space. Like, you know, all while in heels and with her hair being amazing. Her outfits and her hairstyles, uh... Welcome to Women of Marvel. I'm Marvel editor Ellie Pyle. I did it! I am Marvel writer Preeti Chibber, and I like the poof sound effect, and I wanted to try it myself. 10 out of 10. Nice job. Today, we are talking about a goddess. Well, a mutant who can control and manipulate weather patterns and is idolized by millions of people, both in the real world and within the Marvel Universe. Of course, I am talking about Storm. When Storm, a.k.a. Aurora Monroe, was 12 and walking south across Africa, a Maasai tribe on the Serengeti Plains saw her as a goddess and hoped that she would come save them from drought. And she did. She brought them rain. But this was all before she met Charles Xavier, learned she was a mutant, became Storm, and joined the X-Men. Since then, she's been a member of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and even the Queen of Wakanda. We all love Storm, but what do we love most about her? The first thing that came to mind for me was her presence, just the commanding way she exists inside of a room and takes ownership of it and everybody knows it. Number two, I would say her resilience, the fact that she overcame a difficult childhood, struggles with claustrophobia, and all of these things didn't make her any less powerful. In fact, they probably made her more so. Number three, she doesn't put up with any crap. Storm is fully aware of how much she's worth and what she expects, and she gets it. Or else. She's also an incredible leader, whether that is of the X-Men, as Queen of Wakanda, as a teacher in the Xavier Academy, as a mentor to some of the younger X-Men like Kitty Pride. And across Storm's long Marvel history, she has lived many different lives, played many different roles, but no matter what she is inhabiting, she fully commits to that and fully lives in it. And each of those different eras of Storm came with its own unique look a lot of times, which is one of the many ways in which she has had an enormous impact on pop culture. Our fandom correspondent, Faith, talked to two huge Storm fans about why they love to cosplay her. First up, we'll hear Faith's conversation with the incredible drag queen, Dax! Exclamation point. I am a cosplayer. I'm a drag queen. I am an illustrator and a graphic designer. Um, but mostly, I'm just a giant nerd uh, <laughs> and a cat mom. That's very important. You might have seen Dax on season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race. So how long have you been doing cosplay and what made you want to start cosplaying in the first place? I know you do drag as well. So which came first to have that tie in together? I mean, I would say in a lot of ways, drag and cosplay both go hand in hand. I mean, I've been doing drag for minimum 20 years. I mean, it kind of began with, you know, Halloween costumes and the Rocky Horror Picture Show oh, yes. as part of a cast in Savannah, Georgia. And that's kind of how it began and drag by playing Frankenfurter, you know, every Friday night for a number of years. But essentially, I only began doing drag because I wanted to be Storm. Really? So, yeah, I, I mean, my aesthetic has always been pretty much based around how Storm looks, dresses, moves, all of that. So, I mean, I always just kind of wanted to be Storm. And then one day I kind of just decided that, 
you know, why am I trying to be like a typical drag performer when uh, I don't want to be Beyonce? She's fantastic. I love her. We already have one. She's alive, <laughs> she's alive and well. Um, you know, I don't want to be like, you know, a living pop star. I'd rather be a drawing. So I kind of just devoted myself more to that as opposed to like more typical kind of drag numbers or costumes and that kind of thing. Speaking of your Storm costumes, you are in one right now. You're in your Storm cosplay right now, and I can see it, and I can see how fabulous you look, but could you describe it for the listeners who can't see you? Yeah, it's essentially a you know, standard X-Men training uniform with the blue and the gold that Storm has worn several times. You know, she had it with short hair, she had it with longer hair, she had it with ponytail, so we're doing the longer version today because... I couldn't find my short hair. I put it somewhere and I've lost it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, like the training uniform is just like a nice, simple, standard kind of like X-Men look that I love because people don't really do them very often because they aren't necessarily so specific. But like, I love a, a team like matching individuality thing. I love it. What was it about Storm that drew you into her? You said you always kind of wanted to be her. Was it a particular comic run? Was it just her vibes or? I mean, listen, uh, it's all about the hair and the shoes and the legs. Let's be real. My first issue of X-Men was Uncanny X-Men 300 by John Romita Jr. So like the way he drew her with her just massive hair and, you know, her double capes. Like, who's wearing two capes? Why? Do you need two capes? No, but I'm wearing them. Um, And her giant boots and, like, the area where she had, like, you know, the sash belt. It was still a Jim Lee costume with, like, the sash belt instead and, like, the bigger shoulders. So that is what kind of got me into it first, just her aesthetic and just the way she looked. Cheekbones, eyebrows, this massive cloud of hair, like, all of those things were really what got me, you know, interested when I was, you know, like, eight years old. And then, you know, more than that, it's like, I've always said Storm is, like, aspirational, really. Because she she can do it all. She can, you know, rule a country, rule a planet, marry some dude, divorce some dude, fight some Morlocks, go to space. Like, you know, all while in heels and with her hair being amazing. So, like, I mean, if there's anything that I want to be able to do in my life, it's that. To be stunning at all times and handle literally everything while keeping solid composure. Even though I might be freaking out internally, you'll never know. Yes. Because if I do freak out, we might lose Malaysia. I'm just saying. (laughs) Like, you never know. In terms of, like, your first Storm comic and all the ones to come since, how did you kind of approach picking the designs to kind of bring to life? Yeah, I just always wanted to have all of her costumes, basically. So my whole goal is to one day own all of her her costumes. I am, I want to say nine in now. That's amazing. I really want to start doing the whole arc of like her less popular or lesser known costumes, like the ones she wore for like three issues or like a single panel. Like, you know, my favorite one, of course, being uh, the Moscow Knights era, the purple one. Yes, the purple. The purple one. Yes. That no one could draw twice. <laughs> oh, I love that one so much. It was my favorite one. Oh my God, that would um, be fabulous. I mean, I've been wearing a lot of the like the Worlds Apart storm lately. My like most recent slash least recent storm costume like it was like one of the first like official storm looks i made years and years ago like, i want to say like 2009 ish 11 ish somewhere in that area i just wanted to do a redo i wanted just like now that i can you know actually so i'm like let me remake the whole thing because i have the time and the fabric right here let's just go yeah and i really want to do the jim lee design again i want to do more of the romita kind of take on it i've done it before in silver i really want to do it in like i want like a gunmetal gray Ooh. but i'm also cool with like marvel's capcom street fighter alternate color yeah, yeah idea yeah. 
Like do it in pink, but metallic. Honestly, mixing it up is all of the, like, I feel like that's so much of the fun of cosplay. And I think that kind of brings yeah. in that drag element of bringing extra bits of creativity. Like, obviously you have these genius designs by these artists, but adding your own little punch to it. And you have to, you know, obviously like, you know, think of like actual wearability and actual kind of um, functionality because they're just drawn on. Like I do X-Men Red Storm. I have that costume as well. And while I love that costume, her headpiece makes literally zero sense. <laughs> It's like a circlet, but also not connected, but also holds her hair up. No, 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 no. I love that costume because the suit is comfortable to wear. And it's like, you know, it's just a, it's an obvious storm look. But that headpiece makes me never want to wear her unless I have like time to like really wrangle it into my head with enough pins and wire and an extra pair of hands would be great, but has to be a drag queen because no one else gets it. Um, and so, so we don't wear her very often. No, no. It, it makes But sense. I have it. Right. It's you add it to the shelf and you say, mm -hmm. I've been there, done yeah. that. Yeah. Like you can draw it onto a body if you want to, but as far as wearing it in real life, it's going to take a whole system of like literally invisible rigging that doesn't seem complex. But then once you get into it, it's like, oh, wait, there's physics that exist. I forgot. <laughs> like, you know? We have to obey the laws of gravity, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, or the time limits of adhesive no, functionality. Oh, God. Um, so I've seen on social media, you say that her mohawk look is your personal favorite. Mm -hmm. Why do you love that so much? Is it because of the hair? Is it the outfits that come with it? A little of both. I mean, like, it debuted the year that I was born. So oh, I love it's my that. Zodiac sign, obviously. Um, but also, I mean, like, I, I've always had, like, punk roots, essentially. Like, I, you know, used to go to a lot of shows when I was younger. I have a mohawk under this hat that I'm wearing right now. And I've had it forever. It's, like, the only haircut that, like, I found that, like, I liked. And also, it's really hard to, like transition out of a mohawk yeah you either have to shave your head completely or just like go through an awkward phase that lasts for years so i'm just like this is my hair forever now oh well like you know a choice i made at 19 follows me forever oh no that never happens um <laughs> so yeah i mean like it's just always been kind of like my go-to always had you know like goth leaning punk roots i wear a lot of black so it's that kind of thing and it just kind of like was one of the looks that like you know it was just so different for especially for like a black female character to have especially at that time period a black femme character with obvious like subculture or alternative leading kind of fashion. It wasn't expected. It wasn't typical. Kitty Pride cried her eyes out when she first saw it. I mean, <laughs> I get it. I get it. It's a shock. But also, I, I always love how Storm like does have that like angry side to her. I mean, she holds it well and she doesn't like pop up at everybody around her who pisses her off. She knows who she's mad at and she knows why she feels the way she feels, but it's not your fault. She's not going to antagonize you for it, you know? So, I mean, like, you know, just giving her that kind of like edge to her and having that kind of like difference in the character compared to how she was first introduced as being this like angelic kind of ethereal Very grand, goddess figure. Yeah. 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 And, and her being like, but I'm more than that. That's just because I have great hair and I can fly, you know, and her just like kind of taking control over her appearance and the way she was perceived by people around her that they just kind of put all these things on her. She didn't ask for it. She just woke up one day and they're like, oh, so you're a goddess. Cool. And she's like, if you say sure. so. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And that's drag. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's literally drag. No, I drag. was going that's... to say is is that kind of reminds me of drag and uh, this idea of stepping outside of the boundaries that people set or people expect of you. And as we start to wrap up, I'd love for you to just like give a shout out and say where people can find you on social media. The next Storm cosplay coming up for you. Yeah, I mean, I can be found on all social media platforms as at Daxclamation. That's D-A-X-C-L-A-M-A-T-I-O-N. Awesome. Well, it was so lovely getting to talk to you, and I hope you have yeah, an awesome you rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me. 
You know, Dax mentioned Storm's iconic mohawk. Readers might remember it from the early 80s in the Uncanny X-Men number 173, when Storm returned from Japan with a new punk outfit and a new punk hairdo. So many fans love the mohawk look. To learn more about Storm's hair, Faith also sat down with Vicky Bain, a cosplayer who specializes in hair and wigs. I have been cosplaying for 21 big years. Pretty much anything that you can think of to do for cosplay, I've definitely done it. Foam smithing, fabric work. I've been 3D printing recently, which is, it's so much fun to just be able to like think of something and be able to make it. Like it's so wild, it's so wild. But my specialty is in wig styling. So like I've done so many different types of wigs. It's so much fun. I love wig styling so much because it's just like, you can have like a really crisp, clean costume, but then once you put that wig on and it just completes the look, it is just like, oh, chef's kiss. Yeah, so much of the effort, you see people in these like really extravagant costumes and then they, mm-hmm. they don't put the work into the wig and you're like, oh, it's just, it's the last little piece. A little piece, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so was it wig styling that drew you to cosplay in the first place or what kind of was your gateway? Oh, I think for me, it was so random because I had gone to Akon ages ago and I wasn't wearing a costume. It was my first convention ever to go to. And I was looking around. I was like, holy cow, there are so many people in all of these costumes. And I was like talking to them and they're like, yeah, I made this myself. I was like, you made that? And it was so serendipitous because I had just, just learned how to sew in high school. And I was like, I can do this. So the next time I went, that was like, I was like determined to like be part of the cool club (laughs) with a costume. So I was like super jazzed. It was really rough, but also I had a blast doing it and I've never looked back. Yeah, I feel like so much of that joy is getting to kind of put that character on for a little bit and something that you love so much. And so obviously today we're talking a bit about Storm. And so what kind of draws you to Storm in particular as a character, as a wig maker, as a creator? I feel like this is a shared experience with everybody who loves this character, but she's just... She's so relatable. She's so complex. Like she's got so many different facets to her. And when I was first introduced to her, I was watching the 90s animation and I was like blown away by how just, I don't even know, like she's just such an amazing character and so well written. And just there's so much depth to her character that it really resonates with me and a lot of different people from, you know, all walks of life. I feel like she's one of those characters that so many people are drawn to just because of her story and her background and and her strength and her vulnerability and like her outfits and her hairstyles. Uh, I can't like... The costume that I've done the most, I've made it like over a couple of different times, but her like 90s, like the silver or white. Yes. Leotard, the cat suit with like the big hair. I love that hair. That's one of my favorite looks of hers because it's just so majestic. It's so awesome. So you say that's the one you've kind of made over and over again. Like Mm -hmm. how have you approached kind of building that and like building upon maybe your previous creations or or picking out uh, different designs, you know? So for that specific one, it was one of those ones where I was like, okay, her hair is basically like a cloud. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to make sure that I got like, there's a technique that you can use where you like heat up the fibers and then you tease it back and then you like kind of comb it out and it's big and fluffy. So I did all of that, like the whole thing. I actually put two wigs together. (laughs) I took 
wefts out of one and sewed them into another just to make sure that I had all the volume I needed. And after I teased it, I curled it up and I brushed out the curls. I went through like two cans of hairspray just to make sure I had the hold. <laughs> but like, yeah, the first time it was good, but it wasn't perfect because like there was just some shape to it that I could have done a little bit better. So the second time I made sure to like pluck the hairline because she has kind of like a widow's peak a little bit. So I, I did that. And then that one little piece that comes down and it's like curly. <laughs> That was like perfection. <laughs> and I was like, yes, this is it. This is it. That is like not a small undertaking as far as wigs go. And we talked a little bit about, you know, how significant the wig is and kind of topping off a costume and something like that. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear <laughs> what you think about the significance of wigs and hair in representing characters and particularly like Black characters like Storm and like yeah. how that kind of feels for you. I think that... One of the things, like a uniform on a character, that might be their only thing that they wear, but you'll always recognize a character by their hairstyle. Like, you can always look at the back of somebody's head and be like, that's that character, that's this character. I mean, you can't mistake Storm's big hair for anything else. Right. <laughs> I mean, and like her mohawk. I feel like that was another thing that really drew me to that character, too, is the way that her hairstyles change and her expression with that, that actually really helped me in finding comfortability with my self-expression too, because like she changed her hair to that iconic mohawk and it was like so free and so amazing. And, and it helped me to branch out into that. Like I felt like, you know, a little bit closed off in myself and I was like, let's just try something wild. And like, I think I had like an undercut <laughs> for like a really long time. And I was like, yeah, I'm rocking this. But it was so confident. And I feel like for a lot of POC characters too, when they are represented with like natural hairstyles and like, you know, cornrows, dreadlocks, it's one of those things that I think is really important to see because that representation of natural hairstyles in media is so important because it's like, you know, sometimes you feel pressured, like, you know, you want to straighten your hair, which is, that's fine, but you shouldn't feel pressured to do so. That should be a decision that you want to make. If you want to wear cornrows, wear cornrows. That character has cornrows. You want to be that character? Boom. You've got it. Like, you know, there's so much importance in making sure that there's different types represented in all sorts of media so that you can feel comfortable finding a character that you like and feel comfortable in yourself too. I think it helps a lot to help kind of find a place in your community too. Like the cosplay community can be kind of a rough place, but once you have that sense of like togetherness, that sense of belonging, it really helps improve your confidence, I feel like, and let you take risks with things and, and come more into yourself, I think. Yeah. And it's like what you said, I mean, so much of media is seeing characters or storylines that we kind of see ourselves in or see people we would like mm -hmm. to be a little bit more like and allows us to accept pieces of ourselves. That's like mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. of my favorite things about media as a whole. So yeah. I think that's such a good point. And yeah. so just if you want to give us a few insider tips, I, I'd love <laughs> to know how you would go about 
creating a wig for that mohawk because mohawks are scary with material. (laughs) So big secret, I've actually made a mohawk for her before. I made a cosplay of her when she was the goddess of thunder when Loki gave her Stormcaller. So I had like a bald cap, which was the most intimidating thing I've ever had to put on ever. It's so difficult. But like if you have somebody to help you, it's so much easier. It's so much easier. But What I ended up doing was I just took the sides off of the wig. I took all the wefts off of the sides that I took off. I sewed them into like the top that I had left and then around the sides. And then I just put spirit gum on the bottom, stuck it right onto the bald cap. And it was perfect. It was perfect. The bald cap was a little rough. I'm not going to pretend like it wasn't because it was the first time I'd ever done it. But it was super convincing. I had like the little headband to kind of like hide some of my crimes. But, you know, the mohawk is one of those, it's like, how am I supposed to do this? What am I supposed to to do? But once you break it down and, like, really look at it from, like, okay, here's this side, here's that side. This isn't really that bad. It's not as hard as it seems once you get into it. Yeah, it's kind of a bit like Storm. It's like you look at it and it's like, wow, this is overwhelming. But you take all the pieces. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so for the people listening at home, I'd love if you could shout out where they can find you on social media and find some of your amazing work. Sure. I am on Instagram at Vicky Bain. I'm also on TikTok at Vicky Bain. I have a YouTube channel. I believe that's um, Vicky Bain 9 if you search for it there or just Victoria Bain if you search in YouTube. Those are the main places where you can find me, especially recently on TikTok. I'm trying to get more into TikTok. <laughs> I'm, I was a late adopter, so I'm I'm trying to get in there. <laughs> well, it was so lovely getting to talk to you today, Vicky. You too. Oh my God, it's number one Storm fan, Brad Barton. Whoa! Sorry, sorry. Sorry, I tried to use the poof sound effect, but it didn't work. That's only for official correspondence. Oh, also, Storm is awesome, but I wouldn't say I'm her number one fan. My favorite character is actually- Oh, oh no! Oh! Oh! Ow. What happened? Where did I go? Sorry, that was me. I pressed the wrong sound effect button. Ooh. Uh, Brad is our senior development manager. He told us that he really likes the show so far and has an idea. Ten seconds, Brad. We'd have given you more, but these shenanigans cost time and money. What would you like to tell the listeners at home? Okay, can I be today's weather correspondent? Sure, why not? It's sunny! Thanks, Brad. Storm is a powerful mutant and a mighty leader. It's not hard to see why a lot of characters within the Marvel Universe assumed she was a goddess. Author Tiffany Jackson is exploring exactly that in her upcoming young adult novel, Storm, Dawn of a Goddess. Hi, my name is Tiffany D. Jackson. I am a young adult author and I've written a YA Storm book called Storm, Dawn of a Goddess. And it starts off when, you know, she's very young and we sort of like see her grasp and grow into her power and the journey she takes to get there. 
So you open the page and you first start off when Aurora is nine years old and you get to meet her parents. And so you kind of see the complexities of where she kind of got some of her love for culture, her intelligence, her beauty from both her mother and her father who were living in Cairo at the time. And then you dive into, you know, the terrific death of her parents as well too. And you kind of see some of the origins of her claustrophobia. I basically made a conscious effort to start off early because I think that it really kind of explains everything else that you witness about Storm throughout her entire journey. It was amazing to kind of go back into her history, especially follow her footsteps as well, too. She definitely found her footing in Cairo, Egypt, so I was able to go there. Her family is from Kenya, so I was able to go there. It was a lot of going back into that and sort of diving into what it was like to potentially be this goddess in the months of all these mortals and finding your power at such a young age as well too. You also get a chance to see her fall kind of in love for the first time as well too. A lot of people don't know this, but like T'Challa was actually her first love. This is even before they actually got married later on that people don't know that they actually had a history where they were each other's first loves like at a very young age. So it's really fun. I hope everyone falls like or falls back in love with Storm and remind yourselves the thing that keeps running back in her mind is that in the very beginning, she was very fine just being a pickpocketer. She was very fine, like, you know, kind of like running the streets. But there was always a voice inside her that said, like, you were meant to be a part of something bigger. And so that pushes her on this journey outside of just like outstanding circumstances, which you will read in the book. And I feel like every kid has that voice in them. So she's not much different than the rest of us. So that feeling of, oh, I was supposed to do something else that pushes you towards a dream. Brad, we already did your segment. It's raining I didn't know any better. I think Storm was actually manipulating the weather. I think Brad finally got a hold of the sound effects board. But did you know that scientists are actually manipulating the weather in the real world right now, just like Storm? One way they do that is through something called cloud seeding. The practice is complicated and not without controversy. Our producer Isabel sat down with an expert to get the scoop. Fittingly, they actually had the conversation outside, so you might hear some birds. Could you start off by just introducing yourself to our listeners and telling them what you do? Yeah, my name is Katya Friedrich, and I'm a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And my area of expertise or my specialty is anything related with severe weather, severe hailstorms, severe thunderstorms, severe snowstorms. We are looking at how hail is produced in thunderstorms, but we also look at processes that occur in clouds that produce snow. And lately we have a project on cloud seeding. So we are putting silviodide in clouds to make them snow or precipitate. So we, of course, have this character Storm, who we're talking about for much of this episode, who like her whole deal is manipulating the weather, making it snow, making it rain, making, you know, wind blow. And from what I understand, cloud seeding is sort of as close as we can get as humans to doing what Storm can do. Can you explain what that is and like how that helps us as humans without Storm superpowers manipulate the weather? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we're, again, we're trying to manipulate the weather. I mean, some people think that we can 
really i mean make it rain and snow as we want to but it's actually pretty complicated mm -hmm. and i can tell you in a minute why that is so what cloud seeding basically is we're trying to squeeze all the water out of clouds so clouds are made out of tiny liquid and that's why we see them as white little puffy things in in the air um, but these usually these particles, whether it's ice or whether it is water, they're too small and too light to really fall onto the ground. And when they actually start to grow bigger, they then turn into either rain or snow or hail or whatever precipitation we, we have. So what we're trying to do with cloud seeding is we have these clouds that we know contain a lot of water. And we're trying basically to turn this water into ice and then have this ice stick together and form snowflakes. So cloud seeding is a really wide area. So you can try to cloud seed and get water clouds to rain. You can cloud seed and get snow clouds to produce snow. But the underlying idea is to squeeze the water out of the clouds. And that's usually done in areas that are struck by droughts that have really a water problem. And so... For instance, what we are doing, we are cloud seeding in the West. And what we're trying to do is to increase the snowpack in the winter because we want to use the snowpack as an easy way to store water. And then as the snowpack melts, it basically fills the reservoirs and it can be used for agriculture. How much water precipitation can you generate this way? That's a very good question because that is really one of the big research questions. So cloud seeding was basically discovered in the 1940s and it was discovered in a lab, in an indoor lab where we can we understand the physics behind it. Now when we take cloud seeding outside in nature, it's becoming really complicated because we don't really know how much water is mm. in the cloud. We don't really know how much we can get these snow particles to stick. And that's why cloud seeding has been so controversial because in the 1940s, when we discovered how cloud seeding works, it was a little bit oversold. Mm. It was said, yeah, we can manipulate the weather. We can get all this water. Drought is not a problem anymore. And then the reality was a little bit different, also because we didn't really have the measurement instruments to do that. But overall, I have to say, yes, as a scientist, there's a lot of open questions. And one open question is really how much water we can produce. However, cloud seeding is being used in a lot of areas that are under child conditions. So usually the argument is any chop that we can produce on top of what we have is actually a good thing and it's worth mm -hmm. doing. How much you can produce out of this cloud seeding process really also depends on the storm. So we had a study in 2017 where we were cloud seeding Idaho and we basically had, we could show in three cases on three days that what we produced snowing was just generated from cloud seeding. And again, we were usually cloud seeding for one hour and we could generate an amount of water over an area about 100 by 100 kilometers that are ranged between 90 to 150 Olympic-sized swimming pools, so wow. equivalent to the, the water that are in 90 to 150 swimming pools. Again, if you look at this in the, I mean, how much you really produce over the entire area, it's really not a lot. Mm -hmm. But again, these clouds are seeded through the entire winter. So initially, we might just produce a little bit per event, but overall, you can actually produce a lot. Wow, I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> so what are 
some of the limitations of this. I mean, you mentioned doing cloud seeding for an hour and getting a certain amount of precipitation. What are some of the sort of boundaries that you have to work within in terms of how often and for how long and when you can do this? Where we're really comfortable where we know it is working actually pretty well is in these orographic wintertime clouds. So orographic means these are clouds that are generated in the mountains and they occur in the winter. And what we are targeting is basically clouds that have supercooled liquids, so tiny, tiny water droplets that are floating around sub-freezing, so below the freezing point. These are the clouds that we target. We're putting in silver iodide, and that basically makes these clouds or these ice droplets freeze, and then they stick together and they come down as rain. So then there are two types how you can cloud seed. You can either put the silver iodide on an airplane and you're firing up the silver and you're burning silver iodide. So you're flying through the cloud. So that's a pretty solid method of doing, but it's pretty expensive because you have to fly out and you have a certain limit time-wise that you can fly. Another method is that you basically burn the silver on the ground and then generate silver iodide. You hope that the silver iodide is being lifted with some kind of updraft into the cloud. Of course, a lot of people are concerned about that we're putting silver iodide in the atmosphere and that we're manipulating the weather. But usually you put the substance in the cloud and then it precipitates out. So after one or two hours, everything is out of the system. Again, this is relatively inexpensive because everything is on the ground. But again, there's a lot of uncertainty. Does Mm -hmm. the material get into the right spot at the right time. So we're using numerical models of weather forecasting to basically target the time when we have most of the supercooled liquid. We still need to have big storms Mm -hmm. coming in. So in the case of Idaho and the Western US, you still need to have these big Pacific storms coming in. And then maybe we would cloud seed ahead of those storms when we have these type of clouds. So we know what are the conditions that we need in order to cloud seed. And then we would cloud seed for one or two hours. So unlike storm, there have to be clouds and systems already in place to pull additional precipitation from. Is that right? That is correct. And sometimes it's even hard for us to really determine when it works and when it doesn't work. Are there other ways that scientists are currently or are thinking about in the future controlling or changing the weather? And what do some of those other things look like? So modern modification really is being used for precipitation, not so much for wind Mm -hmm. or any other solar radiation or temperature or something like that. Most of the time it's being used to address precipitation, either produce more or reduce it or (laughs) reduce like hailstones and something like that. Cloud seeding is also being used to remove fog around airports because, again, fog is tiny, tiny water droplets and airports don't want to have fog. So what you do again, you're Uh you're putting agents into the fog and you make these tiny droplets basically grow or merge together to water droplets that then fall out. So that's another way where you can use the idea of cloud seeding or weather modification for a purpose. But what where really this kind of modification comes into is when we talk about climate modification. Is there a way where we can modify the climate, specifically cooling the atmosphere and just basically counter the heating of the atmosphere. So again, there are ideas of where we're putting particles high up in the atmosphere so that the sunlight is scattered and it doesn't hit all the the surface. So we are basically preventing heating. I mean, this is a lot of like scientific things. There's nothing really 
in action because it has a much, much bigger, broader political <laughs> impact than cloud seeding mm -hmm. that you can do in a relatively small area. This is all so fascinating. And I can't help thinking it would be so much easier if we had storm here to just <laughs> <laughs> make it rain. <laughs> you wouldn't have to do all this. And you might have some good ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was so, so great, Professor Friedrich. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find you online, learn more about your research and your work, where should they go? They can just go to clouds.colorado.edu. That's my website and there's everything explained, also other topics that we are covering. And there's also more about cloud seeding and there's a lot of like podcasts and news articles about our work and people can follow us. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. So it sounds like we can manipulate weather in the real world, but it's a lot harder and more unpredictable than storm's power. If we need more storm in our lives, which obviously we do, there's never enough storm. Where should we look? Our Marvel Unlimited reading guide, Preeti. All right, Robin, what turbulent tales do you have for us today? I'll preface this by saying that the following list is presented in chronological order. And for this particular list, I do recommend reading in chronology because it starts to fill out Storm's history more and more. We, we fill in the pieces as we move on in the list. And we are starting it off with Storm's origin issue in Uncanny X-Men issue 102 from the X-Men's first volume. This is Storm's definitive origin. We find out what that watershed event was in her childhood that causes her claustrophobia today. That's something she struggles with deeply. And we also find out about her parents, her dad being American, her mother being Kenyan, and what happened to her as a child in Cairo and her interconnected history with the Shadow King. So I love this. To understand Storm, I think this is a key issue. We continue our list with my favorite issue. I love the life-death arc. The first part of this actually starts in Uncanny X-Men issue 186, and that is when Storm is depowered. There was a mishap with the Mutant Forge, who's a technarch. He can control all sorts of technology. One thing leads to another, and Storm is inadvertently depowered. And this is who Storm is as a woman as a person, not just as a mutant powerhouse, um, but what drives her. It's a vulnerable chapter for her, but a very important one. The second part of Life Death continues in Uncanny X-Men issue 198. I call this her spirit quest issue. I think it really is a mythic journey for her. Storm is basically wandering through this windswept desert in Africa. She is separated from the X-Men. She is going on her own journey. And it's a very feverish issue where she confronts her own death. She hallucinates and sees the X-Men. She is pushed to the very edge. But she also discovers that even without her mutant powers, she is a giver and a breather of life. By the end of this issue, she saves a infant. She helps a woman safely deliver a baby and then saves this child's life by physically breathing life into his lungs. This is big goddess energy. It shows you that 
Storm can command the elements, but she is at her core utterly heroic, Mm -hmm. a leader, and someone with just this powerful elemental relationship to her surroundings. Issues like this are always some of my favorites for... When heroes are stripped down to the bare essentials of who they are, because that's so much of what Marvel heroes are. It's like they're the person. Who are they? Maybe if they're not, if they don't have these extraordinary powers and they're still heroic and they're still incredible. So, yes, more of this. Can't recommend Life Death enough. The next issue on our list, Storm issue nine from her 2014 run. I include it because I love Storm and Gambit together. I think they're a really cool team up. (laughs) These two have an intertwined history because Storm was a pivotal part of Gambit's first ever appearance in Marvel Comics and Uncanny X-Men 266. So he met Storm when she was de-aged. He saved her from the Hounds of Shadow King. And the two went off and had these thieving and heisting adventures together, which continues to this day. It's a great team up issue. This is also a heist and it is not disappointing at all. These two have an excellent dynamic. I love that Gambit brings out Storm's mischievous side, which is very much present. I think we always think of her as very regal and restrained, and that's a key part of who she is, because I think if she were to lose control, then everyone suffers for that with her kind of powers. But I I love that Gambit brings out the mischief in her, and it's a whole lot of fun. It's one of those pairings that you wouldn't think would Mm -hmm. work, but it absolutely does. And I also kind of love that because they met when she was de-aged, you know, there's a little bit of that and why it brings out the mischievous nature in her too. That like, on the one hand, who wouldn't be mischievous (laughs) around Gambit? On the other hand, you know, it is kind of tapping back into this younger version of herself who he initially became friends and had these adventures with. Yeah, he brings out the inner child. The next issue takes us to the world of Wakanda, another place where Storm has a very pivotal role. This is Black Panther, issue 18 from the 2005 run. And this is the issue that spiritually connects Aurora to Wakanda. Prior to the wedding of Storm and Black Panther, this is a pre-trial before that giant big royal wedding, Aurora goes through a initiation right to become the wife of the Black Panther by meeting the Panther god Bast, who is the deity of Wakanda. And where Bast has been judgmental of others who have met the deity, including Shuri, Bast is a huge fan of Aurora. Right off the bat, Bast is like, yeah, you're in. You're cool. I'm into this. Goddess energy recognizes goddess energy. Yeah. This is her spiritual connection to Wakanda. This is her divine connection to Wakanda. And she is fully given the seal of approval and marries Black Panther T'Challa in an absolutely gorgeous, celebrity, super heroic royal wedding for the ages. I think it stands as the royal wedding in Marvel Comics canon. Well, and even though their marriage doesn't necessarily last, that connection endures. Yes, and it takes on a different shape, both sometimes romantic, usually platonic now, but we're back on a romance track with these two. They're my favorite power couple, I think, because they're so bound by duty and responsibility, and they know that their love story is much bigger than themselves. 
So what Storm feels she is owed to Krakoa is what T'Challa owes to Wakanda. Mm -hmm. These are two people bound by their roles to their people. And I think it's that connection that really speaks to why they've endured. They get each other. It's a very adult relationship. The next issue on our list is X-Men Red, issue one. This is from 2022. This is a great run for Storm. This firmly cements her as the ruler of Arako, a.k.a. the planet Mars, which mutant kind commandeered in the first ever Hellfire Gala. We find out just how Krakoa and all of mutant kind basically terraformed the planet Mars for their own citizens and for their own use, and even set up portals on Mars to connect to Krakoa. So this is the X-Men going interplanetary, and Storm is at the helm of that. So the displaced Iraqi mutants, you'll meet them in the Ten of Swords event, collected in full on Marvel Unlimited. Planet Araco becomes their home in X-Men Red and becomes the capital of the solar system, and Storm is elected to be the regent of Araco, the voice of soul. So if we didn't know she was a queen already, now she's basically ruling the planet Mars as well. She can add that to the list. This concludes our Marvel Unlimited reading list. Again, you can read these in chronological order as recommended, and we're going to bundle up this list for you along with the episode so that you can follow along if you didn't catch it here. Thank you so much, Robin. As always, I have a ton of rereading to do mm-hmm. right now. But next week on Women of Marvel, we are going to be talking about one of my very favorite characters. We're going to be talking about a little bit of romance and other types of relationships and why they might look a little different if you're rogue. Until then, Women of Marvel is produced by Isabel Robertson, Zachary Goldberg, Ellie Pyle, and Preeti Chipper. Our senior manager of audio development is Brad Barton. Production manager is Emily Godfrey. And our executive producer is Jill DeBoff. Special thanks to our comics correspondent, Robin Belt, and our fandom correspondent, Faith Disa. Listen weekly on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ellie Pyle. And I'm Preeti Chipper. And this is Marvel. Your universe.